Well, hello everyone. My name is Dave. If we haven't met, I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Uni Church. And before Andy gets up uh, to read the Bible, I thought I'd just tell you a bit of a story and uh, set the scene for the Bible reading. The story takes place around 24 years ago when I was 15. When I was 15, I was very romantically interested in a young girl. I'll call her Tanya. Um, that was her name. She's in Australia, you're never going to meet her, so it's absolutely fine. Now, Tanya was uh, into the same music that I was into, we had the same circle of friends. She was a great girl, but there was one thing in particular that Tanya was more passionate about than anything else, and that was, Tanya was a vegan. And she would only go out with a vegan. And so, at the age of 15, I made the very solemn declaration to all of my family that I now was a vegan. And I did this very, very seriously for a period of around uh, over six months. I made my poor mother, I'm one of five children, you know, she's already cooking uh, enormous amounts and then I'm forcing her to start cooking tofu and lentils and buy soy milk and all this kind of stuff. If you don't know what a vegan is, it's a, a vegetarian on steroids. They don't have any animal products, there's no leather, no milk, no dairy. Some of you might well be vegans, uh, which is wonderful, fantastic. So I was committed to now, by conviction, obviously, being a vegan. Um, I, I talked like a vegan. I hung out with other vegans. I even dressed like a vegan. I wouldn't wear leather or anything like that. And I had a few vegan T-shirts, which had animal rights logos on them. One had, like, meat is murder. But that my favorite one was a, a Nike swoosh with the word vegan. And underneath it, on the back of it, was just do it, go vegan. And I would wear this around all the time. However, <laughs> 24 years later, but I'm ashamed, the truth was I wasn't a vegan. Every night I would creep down the stairs and go to the fridge and consume as much animal products as I possibly could <laughs> in one period of time with no one knowing. Barbecue chicken is a big thing in Australia. I would go down, I would eat the bones. I'm there flossing my teeth with chicken skin. I was doing everything. I, I just loved meat. I couldn't stop eating it. I'd go to the milk and I'd get the milk and I'd rip that stuff. I'd just ugh, 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 slug it down. My mum got wind of it. She started seeing the milk go down you know, every morning. So she started to draw a line on the milk bottle to catch me. And I got wise of it. So I'd fill it up with water so she couldn't tell that I was a vegan. I wasn't a vegan, I beg your pardon. So it was funny, from the outside, you would say, this kid is a vegan. He talks like a vegan, he's hanging out with vegans, he's talking the, talking the, the big game of it all, animal rights. I certainly looked like a vegan. I looked like a pencil. I was that thin. However, talk is cheap, and I was no vegan. I claimed I was, I pretended I was, but I wasn't. Why? Because the crucial part of veganism is not what you tell people. It's actually being a vegan, not eating the meat, not eating the dairy. Let me ask you tonight, are you a Christian? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Certainly won't assume everyone here would claim to be a Christian. If you don't claim to be a Christian, you are so welcome. We love you. We're so happy you're here. But I wonder if you do claim to be a Christian... Is that because you speak like a Christian and dress like a Christian and hang out with other Christians and listen to Christian music and perhaps are from a Christian family? Are those the reasons you're a Christian? If no one was watching, 
In fact, when no one is watching, does your behavior match your words? Does what you do, the actions of your hands, match up with the convictions that you allege are there in your hearts? Here at church, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus, Jesus written by a man called Luke. And the last few weeks, we've been looking at the early time in Jesus' life, haven't we? You know, his, chi- his birth, his childhood. Uh, we've just been looking at the beginning of his early ministry. Now, Jesus has been claiming some incredible things about himself. He's been saying, I am not an ordinary man. I am the Messiah. What's the Messiah? The promised king, the saviour. The world is in deep trouble. I am here to save the world. Not just that, but I am God. That's the claim Jesus is making. He's making incredible claims with his mouth, but he's also backing them up with the actions of his hands. He's doing incredible miracles, not just healings, by the way, but actual miracles, signs and wonders that prove, that validate the claims that he makes. But tonight's Bible reading, things get very, very personal for every single person sitting here, no matter what your background, no matter what you claim about yourself or not. You see, tonight, Jesus lays it out in black and white. If you will follow me, then your words are not enough. Please don't be under the impression that becoming a Christian is some kind of easy fix. Jesus calls on all of us to count the cost. And the cost that you must pay to follow Jesus is exactly what Xander spoke about just a moment ago. The cost is a life that is utterly transformed. Does your life validate the claims of your words? Or in actual fact, is the opposite true that Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life? You are. So where are we right now before we look at our Bible reading? Jesus is in rural Israel, like the countryside, and he's wandering around the countryside preaching, doing miracles, and teaching. Now, he creates an incredible impression. Jesus still creates an incredible impression with people, the same kind of impression, actually. Three kind of responses to Jesus. One, people are very, very curious about him, but not sure what to make of him. I think that's very, very common. Everyone's very generally positive about Jesus. You very rarely meet someone who says, I hate Jesus. Even other religions who deny that he is God would say, well, we still respect him. Now, that's a very common opinion in Jesus' day as well. Two, people hate him. The Pharisees, the religious rulers of that time, they see Jesus as a threat to their power, and so they violently hate him. They're already, at the very beginning of his ministry, plotting to kill him. But three, Jesus... Well, some people hear what Jesus says and they, they say, yes, this is the one. He's right. He's true. They follow him and they become his disciples. Now, at this stage, Jesus has actually got quite a few disciples. And so he takes a moment and he goes up to a mountain to pray and he appoints the leadership of his early disciples You'll see it, if you have a Bible there, at Luke chapter 6, but it'll be on the screen as well. Just have a look on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 16. Jesus goes up, he prays to God, he comes down and he appoints 12 apostles. Now the word apostle means chosen and sent. You and I can't be apostles. Chosen, sent, and having witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Those are the qualifications of an apostle. So he appoints 12 apostles to be the leaders of the early church. The number 12 is no accident. Thousands of years before this, Moses, one of the great figures of the Jewish faith, 
with which Christianity is intimately linked, went up to Mount Sinai. He came back down after prayer, and what did he do? He appointed 12 leaders from the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet Jesus has just been saying, the old is gone, the new is here. The old teaching is gone, the new is here. And so he appoints 12 new leaders. Now as you look at these people's names, I want you to pay particular attention to the qualifications that are given about them. You would think the leadership of the early church must be filled. These are the first pastors in history, the first ministers. So surely these men, they must be men of incredible educational esteem, people with great learning. But no, four of these guys are fishermen, a very working class occupation. One of them is a tax collector. A tax collector was an ancient kind of standover man and criminal mafia guy. We don't know anything else about the other guys except to say they were of no esteem. They were of nothing culturally important. And what we learn here is what we learn today about the qualifications for not just being a disciple but being a leader in God's church. God does not care about your university degree. God does not care about your family lineage. God does not care about the amount of money in your bank account, enormous or negligible. What qualifies these men for leadership and discipleship is not the things that they have done. It's who they follow. You see that? It's who they follow. That's what qualifies them for leadership. Jesus appoints these men. He comes back down after doing so and he starts performing miracles and a huge crowd gather around him. He finishes doing miracles and then he stops to speak. And so what he says next, and I want to make it very, very clear for you right now, what we're about to have read to us are two of the most significant passages because it's two type of passages, two most significant um, bits of teaching in the entire Bible. What we see next are two sections of probably one of the most famous sermons, one of the most famous bits of words spoken in history. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. Not the plain like the air, on the plain like no mountains, flat area. Why is it so important? Well, because, my friends, the primary purpose of this sermon is to show you the cost of following Jesus. It's for you and I, right now, forget our backgrounds, forget what we've done, forget where we've been, forget what we've seen, for you and I to be able to go, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it costs to follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray, Andy's going to come up and read this passage, and then we're going to speak about it for a few minutes. Let's bow our heads and let's pray to God. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks, and you speak to us through the Bible. The Bible talks. Your word is living and active. And Lord, you do speak. You are speaking. We pray tonight for us, with all the distractions of the world around us, that we will listen. Perhaps we're coming here tonight, Lord, and we're not a Christian. We know we're not Christian. We're not sure about Jesus. Lord, reveal to those here tonight in that position the truth. Perhaps we're here tonight and you you're not sure where you stand before God, I pray that God, you would reveal your truth to those people tonight. And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, deepen our faith. Help us count the cost again and again and the privilege of being a follower of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Andy is going to come up and bring us our Bible reading. So tonight's reading can be found on page 1034, 1034 on your pew Bibles there. 
uh, we'll be looking at starting at verse 20, which is on the left-hand column there, about halfway down. If you haven't got most of you have it there, so he says, "Okay." Looking at his disciples, he said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you." when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, men, when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you in one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, be merciful just as your father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. So keep the passage out there open in front of you. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What are the qualifications, the cost of following Jesus? Have a look here at the very first section. Jesus begins with what we call Beatitudes, blessings. He starts with four blessings and four warnings, four woes. I want you to just look at the blessings, verse twenty. To 21, have a look. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Take note of verse 20, looking at his disciples. He's saying this to Christians. And the word of God is living and active. He's saying this to us now today. What does this mean? Well, we need to work out what the word blessed means. You might say blessed. You might say blessed. It's the same word. It doesn't matter. If you cough and you say, God bless you, what do you actually mean? If you say, oh, blessings at the end of emails, what does that mean? Well, blessing in Christianity is to be the focus of God's favour, definition. Focus of God's favour, to bask in the light of God's kindness, knowing that in your actions you are pleasing God and God is pleased with you. That is to be blessed by God. Now, hold on a moment, because when you know that, How on earth do these words make sense? Because Jesus says, blessed, those receiving God's favour are those who are poor, hungry, weeping. Now, I don't know about you, but generally, those are not words I commonly associate with blessing. Those are words that I associate with, well, the other thing. I'm not receiving God's blessing. Look at the reasons he gives for the blessing. You are blessed When you are poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Hungry, you will be satisfied. Weeping, you will laugh. 
What is Jesus talking about? Well, to understand this passage, my friends, we must understand firstly what he's not saying. You see, this is one of those passages that many people look at from a distance and say, well, you see, Jesus is some kind of socialist. Jesus has a special spot in his heart for the poor, for the unhappy, that there is some kind of nobility with poverty, and only people who've never been in poverty say that. That somehow, is this saying that if you are poor, if you are miserable, if you are unhappy, then you are definitely guaranteed a place in heaven. God loves you especially because you're going through all those things now. My friends, that is not what this passage is saying. That is not what Jesus is saying. We need to be very clear on this point because this point has been so horrifically utilized in that fashion, generally by people who don't call themselves Christians, that we need to be very, very clear. You see, my friends, these terms, poor, hungry, weeping, they are not referring to people who are materially disadvantaged. When Jesus looks at people, he does not primarily see the material, but the spiritual. These are terms about people who recognize their spiritual poverty, their spiritual hunger, and who grieve in response to their spiritual poverty, their spiritual hunger. What is spiritual poverty and spiritual hunger? That's the awareness that without God I am lost. On my own, I can never be good enough for God. I sin, I turn away from God. That is spiritual poverty and awareness, spiritual hunger, a thirst for God. Now, we've seen this already in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember, if you were here with us, just a chapter before, a paralyzed man. He's brought into Jesus. There's nothing worse than being a paralyzed man in ancient Israel. And yet Jesus looks at this man, and what does he say to him? Not get up and walk. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because Jesus identifies that this man's biggest problem is not his broken back, but his broken soul. Jesus is talking about the spiritual And what this means is that Jesus is promising that you are blessed. You do receive God's special favor when you stop deluding yourself that you are somehow self-righteous enough to impress God. Are you still stuck in that delusion? The never-ending cycle of trying to impress God with your goodness, with your godliness, alleged, with your righteousness. God, look at me, look at me, look at me. I've done this, I've done that. I've given this much, I've been this charitable, I've been this kind. You must love me now. I hold you to ransom. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are blessed when you realize that is a delusion that you on your own are spiritually bankrupt before God. You are bankrupt before God. So just as the poverty and the hunger is spiritual, so is the blessing. You see, there are some people who say if you follow God, then you will be abundantly financially blessed, that somehow God's going to give you a lot of money if you follow him. Again, not true. Have a look at the very next verse, very next verse, I beg your pardon, although it ties in. Look at verse 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Jesus promises what? That by following him, you will face the same response that he faced, rejection, exclusion, insult, hatred, But rather than those things being a cause for lament, rather than us going, oh my goodness, it's terrible that people don't like me that I'm a Christian. Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day 
and leap for joy? Because great is your reward in heaven. Whilst you may face that reaction now, and can I say if you're not facing that reaction now to your Christianity, it's generally because your Christianity is anonymous. That's why. If no one's giving you a hard time for being a Christian, it's because you're not telling anyone you're a Christian. But for you who do face these things from family, from friends, from colleagues, from enemies, you will not always. Jesus is saying, fix your eyes on eternity and let eternity shape your present reality. Fix your eyes on heaven. So he starts with the blessings, then he moves on to the woes. Verse 24 to 26. Now very simply here, these woes, and woe is a word that kind of means warning and cursed, These woes are the direct opposite of the blessings. Instead of hungry and and impoverished and weeping, it's woe to those who are rich, who are well-fed, who are laughing now. Now, is Jesus saying it's somehow sinful to laugh? Is Jesus saying actually having a lot of money is a sin? No. Don't read that in there. Remember, the blessings are not material but spiritual, and here... So are the woes. Verse 26 shows us exactly who these people are aimed at. These woes are aimed at. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. My friends, this is not a warning against people who are materially rich or well-fed or popular. Jesus is taking square aim at the religious establishment, the Pharisees, those who claim to know God, and yet whose God is really their money, whose God is really their food, whose God is really their popularity. This is a condemnation of the unbelieving establishment who have the facade of godliness, but the heart of carnality. This is warning to all of us, many of us here, who claim to know God. But if we were observed without our foreknowledge, without our awareness, would anyone know we know God at all? Would not people think your treasure is not Christ, your treasure is yourself, your treasure is your university degree, your treasure is your financial future, your treasure is your dot, dot, dot. Now, of course, this teaching is not slightly startling. It's enormously controversial. It's the opposite of what you might intuitively think. It's also the opposite of what we are taught by teachers, by politicians, by lecturers, by the media, even by our parents from birth. You see, you and I were always told, there's no doubt about it, that your physical reality determines your spiritual reality. What do I mean by that? That the better your life is here and now, and when I say better, I mean the more money, the more popular, the more laughs, the more crack, the more good times that you have, well, then your soul will be at peace. So sort out the material parts of your life, and then you'll feel the the satisfaction and the contentment that you're desiring. So if you lack satisfaction, as many of you do in your life, if you lack contentment in what you're doing, well, what do you do? Well, if I lack contentment, then to get contentment, I just need to to add things I don't currently have. So I need to get more of what I want, more of what I don't have. And when I attain and acquire those things, then I'll feel the peace that I desire. But we know it never works out this way. When you're poor, you want to be rich. But when you're rich, you just want more money. When you live in an apartment, when you, when you live in a small flat, you want to live in a house. But when you live in a house, you want to live in a bigger house. When you're at school, you want to be working. But when you're working, what do you want to do? Anything but working. When you're 17, you're desperate to be 18. When you're 25, you're desperate to be 17. Round and round and round. 
Jesus knows that what you lack is not the physical, but the spiritual, your spiritual reality, who you are to God. That's what that means. Your relationship with the creator of the universe. That is what defines you. And your spiritual reality, who you are to God, will transform your physical reality. Your spirituality, who you are to God, is the key to blessing. It's the key to satisfaction. It's the key to contentment. We need to turn our perspectives around of what we're doing here, even as Christians. Not seek the material so our spiritual will be better, but continually speak the spiritual, which changes how we view the material. Following Jesus should transform your entire life. It's not mere words. You see, following Jesus should transform not just your desires, but also your actions. And it's in the very next few verses that we see what it looks like to live a blessed, transformed life as a follower of Jesus. We see here some of the most difficult words for anyone to hear and read in all of the Bible because they are so difficult to do, even though people love quoting them. Have a look at verse 27 to 30. Jesus lays out for you, Christian, what a transformed life looks like. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. My friends, again, these are words that are very nice to hear and make Jesus very admirable to outsiders. But when you're an insider, when you're a child of God called to live this way, how easy is this? Indeed, may I put it to you that these claims upon our life and your actions, this evidence of the transformed life is the hardest thing for you to do with your life that you could possibly do. Love your enemies. This is not ignore them. This is not just forget about them, they're fine. Focus on you, have some me time. This isn't just build up your self-esteem and you're going to feel wonderful about everything again. No, no, no. This is not Jesus saying, turn away from conflict. This is just Jesus saying, be generous to those who conflict with you. This is not inactive pacifism or inactive weakness, but proactive love and generosity in the face of hatred, not from a position of weakness, but from a position of strength in Christ. How do we summarize everything Jesus has said here? Well, verse 31. This is called often the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But what do we really live out most of the time? What we live out is do to others as they do to us. I will treat people according to how they treat me. If you don't respect me, I won't respect you. All I want is people to respect me. Is that too much to ask? Well, if you're a Christian person living a transformed life with your focus on the spiritual, not the material, the call is to treat other people in the way that you desire to be treated. Jesus is getting right to the core of your selfishness, by the way, because how do you desire to be treated? You want to be treated like royalty. You want to be treated with respect. You want to be forgiven easily. You want people to apologize quickly. Don't you? I do. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 my friends. Treat others that way. Forgive them. Love them. An English minister called William Taylor, he defines it like this. 
This is deliberate action focused entirely on the absolute good of the other to the disadvantage of self. The call to love. And to not just love those who you like, because that's very, very easy. No, no. To love those, you ha- love those who hate you. Love those who would hurt you and attack you. I want to ask you right now, does this sound impossible? It should. How are you going at this? Well, Jesus gives us the key for how to live this life in the next few verses. Look at 32 to 36. He goes through this list of things that are very simple to do, even though we try and take credit for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Now, we know that's absolutely true. And we also know how quickly we take credit for when we're generous to people we like, don't we? Adolf Hitler was famous for his kindness to animals. Magnificent. Oh, my goodness. So you're telling me you're slightly respectful to people who are generous to you? But I don't mock you because that's how I act. But Jesus is saying the people who hate you the most, the people who are hostile to you, who undermine you, who backstab you, who spread lies about you, rumors about you, people who would genuinely, authentically hurt you, these are the people that we are to love. How? Verse 35. Love your enemies, do good to them, tend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. How is it possible for us to live a life this way? Well, my friends, the key is in here. Your actions will not make you a child of God. There is no point living this way or trying to live this way in a bid to impress God. These actions and words are not life advice to you to get your best life now. This is not ancient Oprah Winfrey. On the contrary, love, goodness, generosity, forgiveness, what are these things? Verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. My friends, all these things are the characteristics of God. You see, your story has been interwebbed all the way throughout these words. You are intimately involved in this passage. You know you're in this passage. Who are you in this passage? You are the enemy. That's who you are to God. You are the one who is struck. You are the one who is mocked. You are the one who is belittled. You are the one who is stolen. You are the one who is hated. You are the one who has turned your back on him. And Jesus in that moment is staring at the very people who will betray him. Judas Iscariot, the man who will sell him off, is there. The Pharisees are most likely there. Even those apostles and new leaders, they will all abandon him. Jesus is looking at the very people who will kill him. Verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. How can Jesus say these words? Because that's exactly how Jesus treats you. Three years after he says these words, he walks to his crucifixion, his execution, on purpose. It's not an accident. And he does it with your name on his lips, not on accident. He does it with your sin on his shoulders, not by accident. 
He takes the wrath from God that was deserved for you. Not an accident. Why? So that God can show you mercy. So that God can show you forgiveness. So that the punishment that you deserve will be paid. You can be his child. Have a look at those words. Be merciful as your father is merciful. You will be children of the Most High. My friends, this is the transformed life. Not done in a bid to impress God, but done as a result of God. And living this way is only possible when your life is not focused on the here and now and material, but when your core, your centre, your being, your energy, your efforts, your dreams, your desires are deliberately spirit-fueled and focused on the spiritual, on God. So what do these mean for us? What are these things? Well, I just want you to focus on three things very quickly. Number one, count the cost. I remember a friend of mine called John, which isn't his name. John became a Christian. He was a wild kind of guy. Um, in Australia, we'd call it a bogan. I think here you call it a chav. Um, and he was miraculously converted, as we all are who are Christians. Let me tell you, this guy's conversion was just amazing to see. He was a, a, a wide boy, you know, he just used to steal from the job site and he, he would get drunk all the time and high and sleep around, all this stuff. And he becomes a Christian and suddenly his life is transformed, not immediately, but what's mainly transformed is his desires. He no longer wants to live that way. And even more than that, he wants to start telling people about Jesus. So he works on a job site and he goes, to, he goes there and he starts telling people about Jesus. And the people there laugh at him and mock him and make fun of him. And he goes to his friends, the guys who he spent his entire life with, getting high and doing crime and all this stuff. And he tells them about Jesus and they laugh at him and they mock him. He gets this Christian sticker and he puts it on his, um, his truck. And he drives it to work and he comes back out and someone's taken a screwdriver and stabbed all the way through it, not even peeling it off, all the way through the cab of the car. Jesus promises blessing to you, but what does that mean? Well, it means to be the focus of God's favour, but what does that mean? It does not mean material prosperity and abundance. It means spiritual prosperity and abundance. It means true happiness, true joy, true peace which transcends all understanding. That is a promise for you. But my friends, do not think you will do it and get away from people mocking you and hating you and belittling you. It is not an easy path. In order to become a Christian, you must realise your own spiritual poverty, your own spiritual hunger, your own spiritual desire, your own spiritual emptiness outside of God. Do not think you bring anything to God on the negotiating table. Yeah, God, you give me Jesus and I raise you with my good works. I raise you with my baptism. I raise you with how wonderful I'm behaved. The only person you delude is yourself. Trust me, no one else is fooled. It's just you. Stop it. Cry out to God. Don't think the world will applaud you. For many of us, of course, it's not the sting of violence, but the sting of isolation, the quiet hostility, the rolling of the eyes, the shaking of the head. 
might be something worse than that. It might be something less than that. As I said before, the more public you are about your faith, the more you'll notice a reaction. If you haven't experienced it, it's generally because you haven't stepped out and said, I follow Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about him? Try that tomorrow. Why not? Because you know the reaction. But Jesus makes it clear this will be the reaction it's promised to you. But he tells us the solution. My friends, when we are harassed, when we are mocked, belittled and made fun of, we are to rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is our reward in heaven. My friends, for your Monday to Sunday, for your life as a Christian, I want to encourage you to step out in faith. By that I mean to tell people you're a Christian. I want to see this church quadruple in size. Not about unity. Who cares? It's not about our little kingdom building. I want to see our church full of people who come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one way that's generally going to happen. That's through you and I working together, us partnering together by telling the people we know we love Jesus. And the only way that will happen is if you step out and tell people. But the only way you'll be able to do that is if you're not living for the current and your current popularity, your current reputation, but living for heaven, living in light of the promise of heaven. That is the cost of treasuring Jesus above all else. But the cost is worth it. Number two, count the cost. Jesus calls you to forgive your enemies. Three years ago, I was at my old church back in Sydney and a girl, Michelle, um, came to speak to me after church to sit down with me and she recanted an awful story that she had been raped recently by someone at her work. Now, there's all types of legal ramifications of saying something like that and doing stuff like that. It was, it was a very difficult thing, but far more than any of that, obviously, is just the horrific nature of what she had said. Because we all know that really, that is the extent of human brutality and cruelty to another, is it not? But what was making Michelle weep wasn't the rape. It was the call to forgive. How could she forgive that man? How could she forgive that man who had taken that from her? Do you feel the sting of what Jesus is calling you to do? Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who make you weep. Count the cost. This is the radical call to Christian love. Christian love that is not reactive, dependent on people's behaviour. It's proactive as a result of the love you've been shown by God. Christian love that is not dependent on other people's treatment of you, but happens regardless of it. Christian love that is so different to anything else in this world because it seeks out to forgive and shine light and bless even when it's spat at and turned away from. This girl, Michelle, she did forgive that man. Did it change him? Not that I know. I have no idea the impression that her forgiveness made on him. But to those who knew, it was life transforming. How could she do it? Because she was not arrogant enough to think that even a crime as bad as rape 
was worse than how she had treated God. And until you come to terms with the fact that your sin is worse than anything anyone has done to you, and I know a lot of that is real and very painful, my friends, you're going to struggle to do this. You are a sinner, an enemy of God by nature, but he loves you more than you ever dreamed possible. That's Christian love. Thirdly, count the cost. David heard the truth about Jesus his whole life, but it wasn't until he retired that he realised that Jesus had died for him personally and this meant he had to take it seriously. Matthew grew up in a home where he was told about Jesus, that he was deeply suspicious of Christianity and its reliability because of the behaviour of Christians that he'd witnessed. His brother invited him to a church event and he started to think and dwell a little bit more on the claims of Jesus on, on their own, not sort of disturbed by the actions of people pretending to be Christians. And he realised it's true, Jesus is real, he did die and rise from the dead and he put his faith in Jesus. Mark grew up in a home where he wasn't told about Jesus, but over the years he met a few people who were Christians and it began to interest him. After attending university and investigating the claims of the Bible, Mark put his faith in what Jesus had done. Sally, Madeline, Francesca, Matt, Tom, David. Some of those names have changed, some of them I haven't. Most of them are sitting in this room. Men and women, ordinary men and women, who have counted the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. What did it cost to follow Jesus? It cost him everything. Everything. Jesus walked to the cross and on that cross, the eternal relationship with his father was gone. And on that cross, God poured out anger, your anger on him. Jesus Sweat, tear, drops of blood, not because he was fear of human punishment, but because of his fear of his father's wrath, and yet he did it for you. My dear friends, Christianity is not about a belief in morality. If you're interested in being a Christian or you think you're a Christian because it makes you a good person, as Xander was talking about up here before, don't get out of here, please don't go, but please reconsider. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about whether or not you believe in the existence of God. It's all about the death of Jesus. Have you counted the cost to Jesus? Is your faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Next week, we've got this Palm Sunday event. I'm going to be preaching, and I'm going to be preaching a very short, I promise, talk on the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to be as explicitly evangelistic and outsider-friendly as I possibly can be, please invite someone. If they don't come, no worries. Please invite someone. We've got this course in front of you, life course. We'd love for you to come. We'd love for you to invite someone. You can register on the back. The details are there. Together, together, we can make our friends, our families, our enemies count the cost together to give God the, the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your son Jesus, for what he has done for us. That he walked to the cross with our sins on his shoulders. And Lord, I pray for the men and women here tonight who do not know you, but you have been speaking to their soul and their heart, bringing them to you, revealing your truth to them. 
I pray that you would do so tonight, Lord, that you would forgive them. You would reveal to them your truth. Lord, save them. And Father, I pray for us who do know and love you, I pray that we would continue to count the cost daily, that we would seek to proactively love, proactively follow, proactively share, that we would hourly, every minute, put our minds and our hearts and our souls to your Son crucified. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.